Well, that's the truth this morning that we are proclaiming, is that we stand confidently in Christ, the one who has reconciled us to Him, the one who has made us worthy, right, in the eyes of God, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of Him and Him alone and Him at work within us. But if you think about, for a moment, our culture and the way that we, we live, we live in a culture that is very independent. It's a, a culture that desires for people to kind of mind their own business, if you think about it, right? It's one where we, we relish our privacy. In fact, we hear common phrases today of things like, that's none of your business, right? It's a phrase probably many of us have heard from our parents at different points. You know, we hear comments of, don't judge me. I don't want to be judged. And there are truth in each of those statements that we are people who are a private people. We are a people who are to live quiet lives. That we are a people as well who value um, value our own independence. And yet, through Christ, He has given us His church. And Christ Himself was a peacemaker. It's only because of Christ that we are not destined to destruction. And so this morning, we're actually going to continue in 1 Samuel, and when we were here last two weeks ago, we looked at loving our enemies, and we talked about how to love our enemies. Well, the truth is, is that 1 Samuel 24 and 25 and 26 really could be set aside on their own, and dealing with this idea of loving our enemies, how we respond to our enemies... And who God has given so that we might walk in righteousness in the face of our enemies. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at this idea of peacemakers, of a real true gospel intercession. And so, as we walk through this text this morning, because it's a large text, we're not going to stand up and read it as one central text today. But we'll be reading it throughout, and I'll be sharing it and reading it as we're going along. But the truth is this, at the heart of this passage in 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 44, interceding as peacemakers protects one another from sin and brings communion with the true king. Interceding as peacemakers protects one another from sin and brings communion with the true king. So let's go ahead and pray together as we dive into this passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come before you and that you have interceded on our behalf. For many of us, God, we never even knew that we needed to have somebody intercede on our behalf. And for some, we're hearing that for the first time this morning. I pray that we might cling to the truth of who you are that we might stand firm in what your word instructs us 
but that we might hold to the great intercessor, Jesus, who has given us life, who has plucked us from destruction. Father, may we see ourselves as your ambassadors, ones who are going before you. Father, may you move me aside this morning and may it be you who brings your word in power through your spirit. May you speak to each of our hearts. May you encourage us. May you reprove us. May your word dwell in our hearts this morning. May it be clear for us, Father. And may we desire you more than anything else. And may we just rest in the confidence of your peace. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, as we dive in to 1 Samuel 25, if you'll recall, David had just been in chapter 24, had actually snuck upon Saul and cut off the corner of his robe. And as he saw Saul, as he was reminded of what that meant, to to dishonor Saul in that way, David spares Saul's life because God had instructed him not to lay a hand on him. And David walks in love with Saul, even though Saul has been seeking his life. Well, In chapter 25, it begins with kind of this interesting little tidbit. Samuel, who is the priest in Israel, the high priest in essence, he dies. And we're told in verse 1, it says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife Abigail, the woman who was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. And peace to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds. Now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, it's interesting. David has gone into the wilderness of Paran, the same area that the Jews wandered in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt. David goes down to this area following Samuel's death, and he begins to to be in this wilderness with his men. And while he's there in the wilderness, 
this rich man, this harsh man named Nabal, he hears of. And it says that they, David and his men actually care for Nabal's sheep. They care for the shepherds. They protect them. They don't allow anything bad to happen, and they allow them to roam. And so David is serving this man, Nabal. Now, for one reason or another, probably because of the wilderness and not having a ton of food, David hears of Nabal and says, gosh, we've been taking care of their shepherds. Surely this Nabal can take care of us. And so he sends his men. Now, Nabal was described here as a harsh man, as a severe man. It actually says that he's a Calebite. Now, what's odd about this is that Caleb in the Scriptures is actually one who is honored and revered. If you recall, Caleb, while they were in the wilderness, said it was safe to go into the promised land, that it was a land for the taking. And yet, the Israelites chose to disobey, and they continued to wander. In this passage, this word Calebite is not being used as a compliment. The word Calebite in Hebrew actually is closely associated with the word dog. It actually sounds almost identical to the word dog. So what he's saying here is this man is completely worthless. He's no better than a dog. He's harsh, he's severe, he's badly behaved. He's like a dog that wets in the corner that's not potty trained and then bites everyone who visits. That's what he's basically getting at. They're pointing out that this is a a man that is severe and harsh, animalistic, And David sends his men up there. Now it's interesting. Carmel is also the location that Saul himself built a statue in his own honor. And so you see David kind of beginning to come in and to to take issue. And so he sends his men to Nabal and Carmel. Now, notice what happens here. It says here in verse 9, When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. You see, David feels entitled. And he becomes enraged when Nabal is ungrateful. And he feels used. In fact, David describes this as one of serving later in this chapter 
as having protected them in vain. See, David's motivation for protecting the shepherds was not motivated by a right heart, but was actually motivated by the fact that he was going to get something in return. And Nabal's response actually exposes what's going on with David. It actually exposes the sin. James 4, 1 through 3 tells us this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. David, this man after God's heart, who loves his enemies so well, just a few days before, loving Saul, even though Saul is seeking to take his life, in this passage, the subtlety of how quick when our motivation becomes not that of God and what it leads to. You see, David moves from one who demonstrates love towards the one who is looking to kill him to becoming enraged with the one who will not give him food that's not necessarily his own. And so David begins to move forward with plans to deal with in rage. And so David goes forward and puts on his sword and begins to move towards battle with Nabal. In verse 9, we're told this, When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David, who is the son of Jesse? This was an insult. David was known throughout Israel. Nabal was coming and saying, listen, I don't care. I don't care what you've done for me. He was minimizing the sacrifices that had been made. And if we can think of that in our own lives, what David wanted to be here was respected. There was a a respect that was owed him that Nabal was unwilling to show. Ever felt disrespected? What happens? Do you feel enraged? Do you feel fired up? Well, David in this moment becomes enraged. He's just been disrespected. His role has been greatly minimized. As Nabal says, listen, who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? This David who had saved Israel from Goliath. 
This David who had lived in the household of Saul, who was treated as a son. This David who had gone out on behalf of Israel and warred. And now this man looks him face to face and says, Who's David? Who is this man? The truth is, for many of us, we can relate to David. When we feel disrespected, it can enrage us. It can cause us to do things that we wouldn't do otherwise. It can cause us to lash out verbally. David, David comes to the conclusion that Nabal needs to die. He and his household. Now most of us, hopefully, do not come to that point where we want to kill somebody and their household for being disrespected. And that's not to put David as if he is some lowly man. It is to say that what was going on inside of David's heart in those moments, and the subtlety at which that passion within us, that sinful desire, can rise above all else and lead us into things that we would never think of doing. In fact, that sin by its very nature will lead us into destruction regardless of how little we think it really is. All sin that is unrepented of, that is not dealt with, leads to destruction. Now notice what happens. David strapped up his sword. It says here that he said to his men, every man strap up his sword, and every man of them strapped up his sword, and David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping sheep. Now therefore, know this, consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Ooh. He's saying, listen, I can't even go to him. He won't listen to me. Maybe he'll listen to you, but I don't have any idea. Truth be told, this young man is one of the heroes of this story. He warns about what is to come. You see, Nabal's servant is asking Abigail to intercede, to be a peacemaker. Romans 14, 19 says, So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. We are to be peacemakers. And so what we see in this passage is a peacemaker at work. 
And the first thing that we see are that peacemakers intercede when sinful or harmful intentions are discerned. They intercede when sinful or harmful intentions are discerned. Notice this. This young man of Nabal intercedes. Abigail is going to intercede. Why? Because sinful intentions or harm have been discerned. Didn't take a lot of discernment when David said he was going to do it. But he says, consider what we should do. Consider it. As followers of Christ, we need to be peacemakers. And too often we allow our culture to influence our lack of involvement in other people's lives. And God has given us to one another so that we might not walk in sin. He actually says that when you see somebody responding with sinful intent towards another person, or you are hearing that that's what's going to happen, or you're sensing that there's going to be harm, it's coming from this. He's saying, listen, consider it. Consider how to be involved. It doesn't mean that we go in and we rapidly barge in. Notice who is doing this. Nabal's wife. It means that where there is relationship, we have responsibility. Not just marriage relationship, but where there is relationship with one another, we are to consider. We are to be peacemakers. One thing that you will not find in Scripture is the idea of being a peacekeeper. See, a peacekeeper maintains the status quo. And the status quo most often will lead to death and disunity. A peacemaker says the status quo needs to change. And the answer is Christ. The answer is the gospel. And what we actually see is the gospel at work the truth is this. In Philippians 4, 2 through 3, Paul says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Then listen. He doesn't say, just become agreeable, you two. Figure it out on your own. He says this. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me for the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Who is to do it? The followers of Christ. We were to be peacemakers. God didn't say, get away, back up, let them work it out on their own. God says, where it's not working out on their own, where there's intent to harm and intent to sin, step in. Use discernment. It does not mean that we come in bullish. It does not mean that we force our way in and that we are in some way the peacemaking police. It means that where we have relationship and where we know of sinful intent or impending harm, God did not say, just mind your own business, step on back. He said, be a peacemaker. Intercede. 
intercede for my people. Hebrews 12, 4 points out, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, listen to this, without which no one will see the Lord. He's even saying that this disagreement, this offense, is actually being used for his sake, for the gospel's sake, so that the Lord might be seen. And where there is no holiness, God will not be seen. He's saying this. He's called us as to believers to be a part of reconciliation which allows God to be seen when it's done in holiness. He's given you and I the opportunity and the blessing to be a part of his ongoing work of reconciliation. God is saying, no, where you have relationship and somebody is going to sin and there is an intent to harm or an intent to sin, we don't just stand back and go, well, that's their problem. Let them figure it out. He says, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker so that I might be known. And so the second thing here about peacemakers is that peacemakers actually display the gospel of Christ. And here's how they display the gospel of Christ. The first is that they initiate reconciliation with urgency. They initiate reconciliation with urgency. Notice what she does. It's, it says here in verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. It says she made haste. She moved quickly. She didn't wait for destruction. She didn't wait for harm. She didn't wait to see how it worked out. Think about this for a moment. What if God had waited to see, you know what? I wonder if these guys will really figure out this righteousness thing. Let's see. The truth is, is that God initiates, in his timing, reconciliation with us. And some might question, well, didn't God wait? Didn't he wait for years to bring about reconciliation? The truth is this. From the moment that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God began pointing to his Messiah as the only answer. The Old Testament points to the Messiah repeatedly. It is the story of a coming Messiah who will redeem a people who cannot become righteous in themselves, but need one to intercede on their behalf. From the moment of sin in the garden, God began pointing at his Messiah. 
gospel's displayed when we initiate reconciliation with urgency. It's so easy sometimes to go, gosh, I'm so busy. But what greater thing than to bring reconciliation between people? What greater thing than to bring reconciliation between man and God? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ reveals the condemnation of our sin, but he came to save us. He came to intercede on our behalf. And when we go and we intercede on behalf of others, we are actually displaying the gospel of Christ through this initiation. The second way that the gospel is displayed is that Abigail in this passage does something unique. It says, when Abigail saw David in verse 23, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servants speak in your ears and hear the words of your servants. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Understand this. This is not a woman shunning her husband. This is a woman who has prioritized the true king first. Who sees the need to intercede for David and Nabal. And so that second thing is that the second way the gospel is displayed is by humbling taking offense of others on self and standing in the gap. Humbly taking offense of others on self and standing in the gap. Nabal is willing to put the guilt of her husband upon herself to, to, to be the one that David begins to look at, that his rage might be pointed at. And then she says, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. In her humility, she actually makes amends. She offers to David what is rightfully his. Jesus does the same thing. The only way to appease the guilt, the only way to deal with the sin and the offense against God is to present himself as a holy, perfect, unblemished lamb. And he does so. 
Jesus presents himself to God to appease the wrath, to make it right. Abigail does the same thing. She presents this offering in this way, saying, listen, you have been wronged. And I will give you what is yours. And then in verse 28, she says, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. She stands in the gap, seeking forgiveness. You see, she points out to David that he will be a sure house. In fact, it's not until 2 Samuel 7 that we actually see David's house being established in this way. But she understands who the true king is. When we deal with one another and we are peacemakers, it requires humility. God will use his humble servants. And in our humility, it means that we have to take the offense of others on self. It means that we are going to, to walk with them and they might say things that are discouraging and hard. They might even question your own loyalty. But you take that burden upon yourself. You're willing to do it for the sake of the kingdom. You're willing to do it for the name of Christ. See, Abigail stands in the gap. The third way the gospel is revealed, and we see this in verse 29, is that she reminds of God's righteous deliverance. She reminds of God's righteous deliverance. Notice what she says here. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She is pointing David right back to his defeat over Goliath. She's saying, David, don't you remember God's deliverance? Oh, and by the way, it was a righteous deliverance, a deliverance that you could have never expected, and yet God did it. He slayed a giant with a little rock and a sling. You remember that, David? You were there. In fact, David, you were the one that slung that sling, that shot that sling, that slayed the giant in the power of God. She appeals to God's past righteousness. God's past righteous deliverance. Now I want you, if you have your notes, to circle C and D, just the letters. And I want you to go to the side and I want you to write reproof. What we have here is a picture of reproof. Abigail is actually reproving and correcting David by appealing to God's righteous deliverance and 
by declaring God's promises and future glory. Declaring God's promises and future glory. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 30 and 31. It says, And when the Lord had done to my Lord according to all the good that is spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of consciousness, or pangs of conscience, pains of conscience, for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She appeals to God's past deliverance, and then she appeals to his promise and the promise of his glory, his future glory. Look at what she says. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. She's saying, listen, you're going to be the prince over Israel. You're going to be king. Why are you worrying about matters such as this? Respond as if you were king. Respond in future glory. Remember that. Let that be the driving force. Don't look at today. Look at who you are and who God has promised you to be. Notice the difference in that reproof. That reproof appeals to God's past deliverance and it appeals to his future glory and the glory that you have with him. In Romans 8, 12 through 17, this is what it says. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For those that have repented and believed on Christ, we are heirs with Christ. We are heirs to the kingdom of God. Why do we worry about such petty matters is what she's getting at. Why are we dealing with this worthless man as if he's not? Remember your position in Christ. Remember that he is glorifying you. Remember that through your holiness, the world sees him. This is bigger than your pride. It's bigger than your respect. It's bigger than your sense of right and wrong, even. You see, through Christ, we've become heirs. We've become heirs with him, and it's so easy to lose sight of it, isn't it not? See, as peacemakers, we have to intercede with discernment. But then we need to see that no matter how difficult it is to be a peacemaker, God is actually saying that he displays his gospel through the peacemaking process. 
calls us to a place of repentance. He calls us to a place of of relying on his lordship, of trusting in him completely, whose loyalty is first to him. We need people in our life who tell us the truth, who care about us enough to not let us to continue in sin. And for a lot of us, that's a scary proposition. My life's comfortable, God. I don't like getting involved in that mess right now. But God's called you to get involved in the mess. As you seek his discerning, God has called you to be in relationship, to have people in your life that speak truth to you and that you speak truth to them. One commentator puts it this way. He says, now David's sin, of course, or failure, is being preoccupied with second causes. He should have just simply remembered that the Lord God had promised to take care of his own, and therefore it's not necessary for him to beg from Nabal. Too often we become preoccupied with second causes, and therefore we become very concerned and worried when we have the promises of the word of God that he's going to take care of us so we don't have to go out begging We don't have to go out scheming and conjuring up intrigues. The truth is this. The testimony of the Christian and the testimony of the church is for Christ first. So, David has gone up to Nabal and Nabal has rejected him. David responds in rage And Abigail mediates. She intercedes. She's a peacemaker. And notice what happens. The peacemaker experiences the blessing of God's sovereign justice in communion with the king. The peacemaker experiences the blessing of God's sovereign justice in communion with the king. So peacemakers intercede with discernment, They display the gospel of Christ. And the promise here is that they experience the blessing of God's sovereign justice in communion with him. What's that saying? What's that mean? Well, notice what happens in verse 32. It says, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in a ball so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Abigail is blessed. But the blessing is not just in the fact that David stops his sinful action. But we're told here that Abigail goes home in verse 36 and came to Nabal and withheld sharing anything until morning when he was sober. 
And it tells us in verse 37, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Being a peacemaker does not mean that you will always get the results that you desire. In fact, Nabal's heart was hardened more because of what had happened. But here's the promise. Here's the end. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. You can imagine for a moment what Abigail must have felt serving as a peacemaker between her husband and the true king. The true king relenting and her husband becoming more hardened. Amazingly, in God's sovereign justice, he deals with Nabal. And Abigail, who must have in the moment thought, what a great reward this is, experiences David coming and saying, I'm going to take you as my wife. An unseen blessing promised from God because God in his sovereignty is just. You see, when we are peacemakers, we can trust in God's sovereign justice. And that that justice will be a blessing. We may not see it in the moment. We may not see how God's going to work it out. But what we see here is that God will, in his sovereign justice, turn what is meant for evil into a blessing for his good. Luke 12, 19 through 20 says this. It says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The truth is this. God will deal with those who are turned away from him, who are seeking the pleasures of this life and the treasures of this world rather than him. But here's the other part of that story. Abigail, who loses her husband, is then granted full communion with the true king. In the same way, we are granted communion with the true King, Jesus Christ. James 4 says that this communion is one that is simply marked by this. It says, But he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and then this, and he will exalt you. When we walk as peacemakers, God will be exalted, and in his exaltation, he will exalt us as we walk in obedience to him. May we not be a people who choose to live life alone and to choose to live life uninvolved, but may we be a people who are peacemakers, willing to stand for his truth, reproving as needed, and displaying the fullness of the gospel to a world that watches. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that we can come before you and see a picture of what it really means to be a peacemaker. God, you are the ultimate peacemaker in sending your son Jesus who interceded on our behalf and may that be this morning the power by which we live in Christ as people who are peacemakers for the sake of the holiness of your name. May we see that our reward is not simply in a transformed life, but our reward is in your name being glorified. Our award is communion with Jesus, the true King. And may that reward, your son Jesus, be enough. May it be more than anything this life and this world has to offer. And we ask this in your name. Amen.